Welcome to the Layer 8 Podcast, Season 2. This season, we'll again hear from the experts. These experts are social engineers and open source intelligence investigators. Sometimes, they'll tell us stories about their experiences, and sometimes, we'll have some questions for them. We hope you'll enjoy them. For this episode, we welcome Nicole Beckwith. Nicole shares with us two interesting stories. The first is about the role she took on as an undercover sex worker and the amount of research she did. She learned the right terminology, she learned the right makeup to wear, how to ask for roses, and to never try to shake a customer's hand. She also tells us of the time when someone stumbled into a hornet's nest with her and some associates, thinking they were in an interview for Pornhub. Let's hear from Nicole. We're going to talk today about social engineering as an undercover officer. I was recruited as an undercover officer right from the police academy. In fact, I hadn't even finished the police academy yet. Um, They needed someone just savvy enough, but not enough that they acted like a cop yet. So um, one day my commander called me into his office and said, hey, you have a few visitors here that would like to speak with you. So I walk into the office and I see three pretty large guys standing in front of me, uh, typical undercover cops and a detective. Uh, We usually called them the Duck Dynasty crew because they have the beards, the baseball hats, the flannels. Um, So they explained that they were looking for someone to help with an operation that would require me to take on the persona of a sex worker. And in this case, a decently priced escort from out of town. So now looking back on this situation and from the outside, I'm sure that people have all sorts of red flags going off in your minds, you know, like I'm not prepared, I haven't been trained, Um, but none of that mattered at that point. I didn't care. I was eager to prove myself and this was exciting. So I considered it an honor to be asked. Um, So in, you know, typical Nicole fashion, I threw myself into the operation and, you know, made that my, my job for the next, you know, several months. So, um, Basically, what I figured was, after all, how hard could it be, right? You're just playing a role. So over the next week, several weeks, I met with them, and they went over all sorts of scenarios with me. Um, I was given this mini booklet uh, on the correct terminology. I had no idea that, you know, there was a whole book that would be involved in this. Um, And, you know, the fact that They don't ask you for a payment, but instead you request roses um, during these transactions. And I ended up learning the difference between in-call and out-call, a girlfriend or a porn star experience, French, Russian, and Greek. And if you don't know what those are, Google it. And I'm definitely not talking about the languages. Um, I learned what those acronyms were and how to say them properly. I learned, you know, all sorts of things. Uh, it, it was just the beginning uh, of this whole process um, was to study and really dig into you know, the background of all of this. I knew that I then had to transform myself because like all professions, there is a typical look. So I imagined myself as Julia Roberts and pretty woman. And I know that's totally cliche. Um, and I definitely didn't get Richard Gere at the end of this. Um, but you know, I started there and then started doing some research and, you know, looking at videos and, um, you know, just really digging into Backpage and Craigslist and the ads that were listed. 
Um, so this was kind of my first real foray into social engineering, um, although I definitely didn't call it that back then. I didn't even know social engineering was a term or, or what it was you know, called. Um, but I just looked at it as acting. Uh, I knew that in this instance, I needed to execute this role flawlessly or it could actually potentially cost me my life um, or an injury or, or you know something else or, or hurt one of my partners. So, um, and all of that was kind of a minor detail that I seemed to have no issues glossing over at that time. Um, I was, you know, 10 foot tall and bulletproof. I uh, didn't even think about any of those details. So, um, really dug in and, you know, my persona, my undercover persona was born and it was one that I actually used. In fact, I still use it. Um, but, you know, for years and years and years doing undercover you know, gigs, it could be, you know, prostitution or drugs, which we'll talk about later. But this was my persona. So I learned, you know, who I was, my undercover persona inside and out. Um, I was a college student that was in town for a wedding, needed a little extra cash to party with. Um, I wrote my whole life down. I have a, a binder, in fact, um, with every detail meticulously mapped out um, down to, you know, uh, things like birthday, obviously, uh, co what college I went to, the classes that I attended. So I actually pulled up the classes on the website and made sure that I knew which ones I would have been taking. Um, researched the professors, found videos online about the professors, um, popular bars that all the college students, you know, happened to frequent at that time, what job I had, where I lived, a dorm, um, all of that was mapped out. And then it was sent to an actual officer or detective that worked in that college town to review for accuracy and to throw in some additional details. So, um, you know, it, it was mapped out pretty good. I studied that uh, day in and day out to make sure that I really knew and didn't have to think, you know, uh, to be able to answer questions. Um, I then studied the local college girls where I was at. Uh, looked at videos, I watched how they dress, you know, what the music was, because I definitely wasn't a college kid at that time, um, you know, how they dress, their makeup, you know, what they were into, and you really studied them. And I knew that if I was going to do this, I was going to do it right. So I went and bought new clothes, I went and bought new makeup, I made sure that like, I was that person. Um, and so, you know, you have this whole persona. Well, then you have to transition that into an escort or a prostitute. So obviously you need photos to put online. So that was probably the hardest part for me. Uh, I had to find my most sexy outfits, my lingerie, you know, and without being naked or showing my face, had to take photos to put online. Um, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's pretty obvious if you didn't show your, your face that you're a cop. But I was able to easily explain that away by saying that I didn't want my family and friends to see them and I didn't want cops to be able to identify me. And so it was believable. Um, and then, you know, my, the agency that I was working with threw these up on Backpage, put a cute little ad up there and, and Craigslist as well. Um, and it was such a surreal moment for me to see myself listed for sale as a sex worker online. It, it was just 
it, it was weird and interesting all at the same time. Um, and one of the things that I think that people don't see in these whole experiences is that these operations have a lot of prep work that goes on behind the scenes leading up to that day, you know, for a week or a week and a half um, at all hours of the night, I was tethered to this burner phone you talking to these clients about every possible fetish kink position describing my body you know um if i had blonde hair or brown hair you know they should have been able to see that from the photos but you know they still wonder um some of the things that they ask for still to this day make me squeamish and make me want to vomit um, but it included hours and hours of scheduling clients you know every half an hour doubling clients up every half an hour because statistically only 20 to 25 percent of them are going to show up um, the rest of them pretty much just get off on the thrill of, of messaging it honestly was exhausting and at the end of the week i didn't even want to hear the word sex um, all the fun was completely gone out of this you know process um, and it became real pretty quickly for me so you know I have my scheduling book. I had to gather probable cause and, you know, put down what they were requesting and, and how much, you know, they were going to pay me. And then the night of the operation, you know, we were set up at a hotel that happened to be right next to a gas station and a McDonald's. And mind you, this is the first time I'd ever done anything in law enforcement, let alone an undercover, you know, operation. So we had detectives and uniform officers staged, you know, multiple locations just in case anything went sideways. Um, there were officers that were in the room with me. There were officers that were, you know, hidden in vans and cars throughout the parking lot. Um, and this was the only time that I had ever used a room that wasn't an adjoining room. Um, my room was right next to the parking lot and it was an outside um, door. So you went from the parking lot right to the hotel room. This was actually pretty dangerous. And like I said, the only time that I ever used it because there are so many, um, you know, tactical issues with that. But, uh, you know, this is the hand that I had been dealt. Um, I had already made, like I said, primary probable cause via the text or the phone calls, sometimes both. But in the time that it took me to meet the client in the parking lot in this case, um, which is a whole nother bad idea, uh, but I would meet them in the parking lot. And from the time that I would meet them in the parking lot, hoping that I had a little bit of space from the time um, that we hit the door, maybe 50 feet, I had to gather secondary confirmation probable cause which is a lot harder than you would think because people don't want to out in public, not in the confines of a room, say what they want you to do to them. So I had to get really creative. Um, and this is where studying body language, the psychology, um, social engineering methods came into play. In the seconds that I first met them, I had to get them to trust me, to like me, and to want me. And, you know, I'm not going to give away all my secrets, but I really struggled with the first one. In fact, you're all going to laugh because I reached out to shake his hand when I first met him, um, which 
you know, obviously is, is not proper etiquette. It's not something that anybody expected. So he kind of looked at me funny, like, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, you're supposed to pretend that you know me. Uh, but so that was the first one. And then the second one got a little easier. The third one got a little easier. And then I started to get into a rhythm. I learned, you know, through these experiences, people's weaknesses and how to catch somebody off guard, how to make them just uncomfortable enough so that they felt the need to talk out of nervous energy. And that was huge. Um, so for example, uh, one of my favorite things to do was I would, you know, immediately if I see them, you know, pull in and you can typically tell, or you have a car um, description before they even get to the location. So um, as soon as I saw them pull into the parking lot, I would walk out to them as fast as I possibly could, um, greet them. And then I learned to like throw my hands around them for a hug. And tactically, um, I was, you know, when I was doing this, I'm sweeping their waist, I'm sweeping their pockets, checking for weapons as I did it. Um, and then I would simply whisper, so tell me what you want again. And of course, batting my eyelashes, biting my lower lip, you know, flipping my hair, whatever, you know, I was doing. But in that second, they were nervous enough um, that they would just blurt out what we had discussed. And that was huge for me. That, you know, was uh, definitely a point where I felt more comfortable with myself. I felt more comfortable with the operation. Um, I knew that I had you know, made what I needed to get uh, prior to getting to the, the door of the hotel room. Um, and so the only other thing that I had to have them say is what the dollar amount was. And, you know, as I mentioned before, you don't say, what are you going to pay me? <laughs> it is, you know, how many roses did you bring for me? Because at the time, that was kind of the terminology that was used. It was roses. And um, each rose equaled a dollar. So, you know, he would say, I brought you 100 roses. And bingo, I had it. I had my probable cause, um, you know, most of the time before I even got to the door. If we were at the door, I would kind of struggle, drop my key card, you know, fumble around a little bit until I got it. Um, but then I would get to the door. I would uh, typically I would pretend to drop my key card and then step back um, as the officers inside would open the door and then, you know, snatch up the client. So, uh, again, this setup was highly unusual. Um, you know, that was the first time I had done it. Most of the time when we're doing this, it is, um, you know, I'm meeting somebody downstairs in a hotel that you have to go inside the hotel, walk through a hallway. So I have a lot more time um, to get this and, you know, there's folks staged throughout, but um, like I said, this was the first time that I really had to get somebody to trust me that quickly. I had to put on this persona. I had to, you know, create um, my profile. I had to dress apart. I had to act apart. Um, and, you know, I loved doing it. I, it was a lot of fun for me. Um, so uh, after that one um, word got out, I ended up working with bigger agencies who had better methods. They had uh, better technology. Um, cameras and, you know, mics and all kinds of things that made it a lot safer for me. Um, but word spread uh, pretty quickly after I did, you know, one or two of those. And then um, I was asked to be an undercover narcotics officer. So 
uh, an addict in an attempt to combat the growing heroin epidemic that was in Dayton, Ohio. I'm sure most people have heard about Dayton, Ohio because of the heroin epidemic. Um, but this was way more intense. And again, it came with studying the terminology, the behavior, my appearance had to change dramatically again. Um, and the possibility of bodily harm became a little more apparent at this point and less easily glossed over because you know that the people that you're dealing with, 99% um, of the time, they have a firearm on them and potentially other weapons, you know, knives and, and other things stashed uh, all over them. So your odds of um, being robbed, stabbed, shot, or coming in contact with fentanyl or you know, other things that can harm you are greater um, when you do this. This is also where my um, interest in studying of OPSEC really came into play in, in um, OSINT and social media accounts and how to use sock accounts, how to scrub your photos from the internet, um, making sure that nobody can trace your photo or your persona back to you or your family. Um, and then you're educating your family on, you know, don't answer door for strangers, which people think about, but it's completely different in this you know, scenario. Um, I noticed every car sitting within a half a mile of me, no matter where I was at, still do, it's just, you know, instinctive. Um, so this went from, you know, kind of fun to real in a hurry. And as much as we investigate and do surveillance, they do counter surveillance. We do OSINT, they do too. Um, in fact, in one case that uh, I had helped on, a federal agency served a search warrant on a high profile drug dealer. And when they were searching his car, found a file folder of agents known to work drug cases, photos of them, photos of their families, aerial photos of their houses, their cars, their license plates. Um, so that really hit home for me. And that is when I really started digging into what is OSINT? How can I research this? How can I use this against the bad guys? Um, but for the narcotics cases, I started studying again. I, you know, studied current trends, local and national gangs, and Dayton has, you know, well over 100 local gangs. Um, that's not to mention, you know, all the national gangs that are there. Um, where they operate, the areas that, you know, you don't even roll into without a SWAT team. Funding sources, um, all of this for 15 minutes of a deal. Um, an enormous amount of knowledge and research goes into all of this. And you, you really have to be the life because it's one thing for a John to trust you and believe you. It is a whole nother thing for you know, a drug dealer or um, you know, a CI to believe you and trust you. So I had to completely transform myself again to do these, uh, these undercover gigs. Um, everything from chipped nail polish, unwashed hair, dirty clothes, no makeup. I drove the most rundown minivan <laughs> with trash, you know, McDonald's spread all through the car. Uh, the items on your key ring, the air fresheners in the rear view mirror, um, or as we like to call them, the felony forest, <laughs> because uh, it covers up a felony, right? The smell. Everything had to fit perfectly. Uh, these guys aren't dumb. Um, they can sense the, the smallest thing, you know, if it's off. So uh, you really have to be on your game. 
And again, I was good at it. People trusted me. I was able to get the buys. I was able to walk in with a CI and nobody would be, you know, the wiser. They didn't question me. Um, they just trusted me. And so uh, you that was a lot of fun for me, the social engineering aspect. Um, and then I got my hands on Michael Basil's OSINT book um, and then became the Nell Jones of, you know, our group, our narcotics team, um, ended up mapping full you know, drug organizations just through Facebook and the phone numbers that we got because, you know, back then you could do that. Um, I really miss those days of being able to type in a phone number on Facebook and getting somebody back. But um so that was a lot of fun. And that was, you know, my first stunt into social engineering, open source intelligence, um, and really, you know, becoming those people. So it was a lot of fun. Um, I would say probably my worst case or my scariest uh, time on all of this was uh, one time I was doing an, an undercover prostitution sting. Um, I ended up, you know, it was a two-story hotel. I would meet the the clients downstairs. Um, we would walk upstairs and down a long hallway. So I had plenty of time, you know, to get that secondary probable cause. But I'll never forget, um, and they teach you this in the academy to, you know, really pay attention to that spidey sense. Your, you know, your intuition um, can save your life. And never really until this time, you had to put that into use. So I meet this guy downstairs and immediately that spidey sense goes off. You know, I, I something wasn't right, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Um, and so I meet him and he's dressed in khaki pants. You know, he looks like, um, you know, a, a frat boy, but nerdier. And you tucked in uh, you button up polo shirt, his hair slicked back. Um, he smelled good. He was clean shaven. And so it, it, that wasn't typical of, of the clients that I was dealing with. And he was really nervous. And I, I was watching his body language and um, he was really good at what he did. Uh, he ended up, um, you know, got probable cause and, and we're walking up the stairs and he says, you know, I'm really nervous. Uh, about this. This is my first time ever. And I said, what do you mean? This is your first time. He said, well, I'm a virgin. And, you know, my buddies are making fun of me. Um, I just want to get this over with. And there was that split second where I thought, I just need to tell this guy to go away, to just turn around and run. Like I started to feel sorry for him. But I listened to that intuition I'm like, we can figure this out later. If this truly is the case, you know, we'll figure it out. Ended up, you know, getting him in the room. And um, at that point, I would walk into the room, you know, open the door for him. He would walk in and I would just tell him, you know, go sit on the bed. I'll be right with you. I'm going to freshen up. And I would go right into the bathroom because in most hotels, the bathroom is right there. So ended up, you know, of course, the other officers come in and we start talking to him. Well, as they're patting him down, he has a gun on him. He has a knife on him. He has drugs on him. Uh, he ended up admitting that this was his thing. Like he went around in basically social engineered prostitutes. It was a reverse social engineer to believe him um, that he was a virgin, make them feel sorry for him. And then he would end up robbing, raping, you know, whatever 
So uh, that was kind of my um, light bulb moment to trust my instincts and really you know, believe the body language and, and what you're feeling in the background. So um, you know, social engineering uh, in reverse. So that was the first time I felt social engineered. I knew that me feeling sorry for him was you know, his way of doing that. So I know Snow commented on one of my tweets about doing this podcast and said, you know, I better be telling the Pornhub group interview story. <laughs> so I figure I might as well, you know, tell everybody what that is. So you're not wondering. Um, one night, I think it was a, a Saturday night early in you know, quarantine uh, that a bunch of us jumped on a Zoom call and it was Snow and JC and uh, Danny Akaki and alkaline red, just a bunch of us that jumped on. I think there was nine or 10 of us. And we got the bright idea, I think it was JC actually, that said, hey, um, why don't I hook us up to chat roulette? And so he engineered a way to get it to where they could see all of us, not just one of us, but they could see the whole panel of us and we could all see them. And so we jumped on chat roulette and we're talking to multiple people and, you know, just having a blast talking to people, getting to know people. And you always find, you know, the interesting ones and, and people that don't want to talk and then people that do want to talk. So uh, we ended up landing on this guy from New York and, you know, he was walking around his kitchen and just wanted to you know have some company and chat with people. And uh, I think he was actually making dinner or just got dinner. And uh, he was really confused as to why there were so many of us on this call. And we you know, talked with him for a little bit. He ended up being a construction worker from New York City. Um, and uh, as it went, like he was really concerned, like it, his, his concern was growing that there were so many of us and, and he, he just didn't understand what we were doing. So um, I decided to roll with it. And I forget who it was that was on the call, but somebody had the Pornhub logo as their background. And right before this, he had actually commented um, on my setup because I had, you know, stuff behind me and I had what looked like uh, my old setup. I had pictures and like certifications from the Secret Service and just different stuff behind me on the wall. And he commented, it looks like you're in an office setting. Are you a boss or a professional of some sort. And so that's when I started to roll with it. Um, immediately looked, saw that Pornhub background and said, well, actually, it's funny you should ask. We are from Pornhub and we are jumping on chat roulette because we want to recruit people uh, to do the amateur video section of Pornhub. <laughs> so he was immediately interested. And of course, I have the who's who of social engineers and bullcrap artists <laughs> on this call with me. And so um, they immediately, you know, chime in and, and everybody's jumping in and saying, yeah, you know, so we have this thing, you know, we actually pay you and, you know, all we need is your email address and your address and your blah, blah, blah. And this poor guy, he didn't know what hit him. By the end of the call, we had completely social engineered him. We uh, were able to find, you know, get his email address, um, address. We knew his full name. Uh, we knew, you know, his profiles because as he's giving us this information, obviously we're all <laughs> researching him online as we go. Um, and so we said, okay, you know, within the next couple hours, you're going to get this 
you know, package from Pornhub with, you know, all of these, um, you know, terms and conditions. And if you're okay with the contract, just go ahead and sign it, send it back to us um, and, and you'll be good to go and, and we'll set you up. And of course, you know, it was intriguing to him, but he wasn't quite sure if he wanted to do it or not. So it was like, yeah, you know, maybe I'll look over it and I could use some extra money. So what kind of money are we talking? This guy was completely convinced. I, I'm sure he's probably still wondering where his, his package is because we never <laughs> sent anything to him, obviously. Um, but he was asking all kinds of questions and, oh, do I have to show my face? Do I have to, you know, so he was completely into it. And of course we had great answers. So that is the group Pornhub interview story. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I hope you all enjoyed. Thank you for listening to the Layer 8 podcast. You can find out more information about us at layer8conference.com and find more podcast episodes on many of your favorite platforms. We hope you enjoy these episodes as much as we enjoyed making.